Acts chapter 3. What a great miracle. We studied last week the great miracle of this lame man. And I just, I just can only imagine what it was like for him. Yeah. He helpless, hopeless, and yet healed. Sitting on the steps of the temple. And you know that when he ran into the temple shouting and jumping up and down in those old worn out clothes, probably didn't smell that great, grabbed a hold of Peter and John, and the grammar means he wouldn't let go of them. And uh, the people in the temple were mad as hornets because he's in there just praising the Lord Jesus' name. And in the name of Jesus, he's healed and he's praising the Lord. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest and all the elite religious people are angry. And Peter, after this, jumps up and preaches Jesus and then ends up, he and John are called in before uh, the Jewish leaders because of their terrible sin of preaching Jesus. And so we love this passage. Luke, our, Dr. Luke, our Gentile physician, the only non-Jew writer of the New Testament, writes this. And he gives us three evangelistic sermons by Peter in the first few chapters. And we notice that Peter constantly mentions each time the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That had to make the Sadducees mad because they denied the resurrection. Sad, you see. And the Pharisees hated him. And, and they, they all hated Jesus. And he preached that, but he also preaches repentance. Telling them they need to repent. And he will go on to rebuke these people in this text as he preaches. And he gets them in a lot of trouble. But I love it that he just took a stand. We see the explanation in verse, verses 12 through 16, and we see the exhortation in verses 17 and following. So stand with me, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, verses 12 and following. I love this. It says, and when Peter saw it, he, he saw the miracle, he saw the response. He answered unto the people, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our power, O holiness, we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. Let's pray. God bless us. We know, Lord, that, uh, Father, you sent your son Jesus to be Lord and Master. I want him to be Lord of my life. And I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't made him Lord, that today they will make him Lord surrendering totally by repentance and faith to his will in their lives. Lord, we're bought with a price. We, we don't even own our own bodies. Everything you've given us is just, are just blessings from heaven. We have nothing in this world where pilgrims passing through help us to realize you're on the throne and one day we'll be with you. And only what's done for you will be important. And only what's done for you will last. So I pray today you'll bless in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Peter sees an opportunity to preach, and he, he preaches. And uh, he says, not by our holiness. And this word in 1 Timothy 5, 4 is translated piety. 
Remember, the religious crowd, they were pious acting people. They went around and looked so holy, and yet they were so lost. And he says, this man was not healed because of our piety or our holiness, as it's translated here, but was healed by faith in the name of Jesus. He just let him know, I don't want glory and credit. He said, I want to give the glory that, that to the one who deserves the glory, the Lord Jesus. And then he says in verse 13, and he's going to get on their nerves. He said, the one that God glorified, the Lord Jesus, Isaiah said he would be glorified. The one that God glorified, you delivered up. You delivered him up to death. You, you delivered him to be crucified. Now, he'll, he'll put a little exclamation point in a few moments. But he said, you delivered him up and you denied him in the presence of Pilate. You denied him. And the word here means they were right in the focus of Pilate's vision. And you denied him in the presence of, of Pilate. And the one Pilate determined to let go. Pilate was just going to make a political decision. He always went with a crowd. He was a great politician went with the crowd, had no character or backbone. And so he was going to let Jesus go, but the people didn't want that. And so the Bible says that he was determined to let him go. And then Peter goes on and begins to quote several Old Testament books and mention many of the prophets. Excuse me. I got choked up, and now I've got this problem backed up. After you're choked up, you're backed up. So, sorry. Uh, and so he had... He had noticed the opportunity and he preaches and he quotes from Samuel and David and he references Moses and Samuel and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see, he didn't have the New Testament, but boy, he knew the old and he referenced all those passages which pointed to that day. And he used the Old Testament to show them that Jesus was the one. He quotes the 16th Psalm, verse 10, Isaiah 41. Then he says here in verse 14, you desired Barabbas. You denied the Holy One, he said that twice, and the just, meaning Jesus Christ is perfect, he's righteous, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Now he's talking to the leaders. He's talking to all the people in the temple are gathered around and he's preaching Jesus in the temple and that's forbidden. And he says, you've delivered him, you denied him, you you desired Barabbas. And he goes on, they're already angry from the celebration of this man. You know, you always know what kind of people in church you have when they're upset because something great happens. Well, I don't know about this. These people are a little bit too happy today. I'm going to have to check on this. Hey, this guy blew those people out of the water. He's jumping up and down. And they're upset. And now he says, you did this and that and this and that. Verse 15, you killed the prince. You killed the prince. Now, you know this word is translated several ways in your Bible. It's the word arch. We get our word archbishop from it. It means head. It's translated in Hebrews 2.10. It's translated the captain of our salvation. In Hebrews 2, uh, 12, 2, it's translated the author, author, captain. It's translated several ways. He said, you killed the prince, the author, the captain, you killed him, blaming them. And then he says, verse 16, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong. 
Jesus is the one who brought strength to his weak legs and made him whole. And now he begins to exhort. It doesn't get easier on them. He does give them a little bit of grace here, one scholar said. He says, he says in verse 17, All now, brethren, I wot, that means I think, it's intellectual knowledge, not experiential knowledge, there's a difference. But he said, I think that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. He said, I think you and all your leaders, your rulers, did this through ignorance. It's a word we get our word agnostic from. And he says, I don't think you knew what you were doing. He's, he says here, uh, remember what Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, it was our sin that put him on the cross as much as the Roman soldiers, as much as the Jewish leaders that made it happen. It was the Romans, it was us. It was all part of God's plan. Now, he gives them a little grace here. Look at Numbers chapter 15. I want you to see this. We're going to look at two passages today. Numbers chapter 15. And this is important for you to see. Jesus talked about who has the greater sin. We talk about all sin separates you from God, but we know that some sins are worse than others, right? And we have certain sins we do. Um, this week I was out on visitation and we came up and the light was yellow. And Lloyd's with me and Lloyd put his foot on my gas pedal and made me go through a red light. I thought I was going to make it. It was all on me. And I th said, well, I, I thought I had it. But do you know, ignorance is no excuse of the law. And even accidental things we do, we still are accountable for those. If an officer pulled me over and I said, listen, officer, I'm, on, I'm doing church work. He'd say, well, good. I'm doing church work too. Romans 13 says I have to write you a ticket. <laughs> we didn't get pulled over. But... You know, we have certain things we do, some, sometimes accidentally, really minor things we would say, like the Rahab lie. Oh, there were years ago, a lady came up to me and says, how do you like the way I look in this dress? Oh, man, she looked awful. What do I say? You look fine. I wasn't honest. But the Bible says... It, can we justify sin, Romans 8, 3, 8, because it's minor? Of course not. You can't justify any sin. But notice in Numbers chapter 15, verses 29 through 31, some sins are considered more serious. And the offertory system was actually set up for minor sins to do minor offerings. Isn't that interesting? Look at it, it says, Numbers 15, 29, ye shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance. Okay, see, there, there's laws for those who sin by ignorance. But look at verse 30. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he is born in the land or a stranger, it doesn't matter. Sin is sin. Verse 31, because he's despised the word of God, he's broken his commandment. You see, there are other sins that are more serious to God. When you deliberately rebel against God, when you know what you're doing's wrong and you do it, guess what? You're going to answer for that. And the answer is more serious, isn't it? When you deliberately do the wrong thing. You know, we're born with a conscience. We're not like the animal kingdom. I mean, even when a, a child is born, he's already got a conscience instilled in him to know some right from some wrong. 
He's not saved, but that little kid knows when he's doing wrong. I've told you, my son at eight months old, I remember him sitting and turning the stereo way up. And I'd look back and he'd do, stop. And then as soon as I looked away, he'd turn that knob. He loved the music and he'd be bouncing up and down. He'd turn it so loud. The little guy was sinning. But you read about animal species and some of the things they do. Like the, the howler monkeys that will take their baby, the, the male will take the baby, rip the head off, suck the brains out, and drop the body. They don't have a conscience. But we have one. We have a conscience. And we're accountable for everything we do. Even if you're never saved, you're accountable and you're going to stand before him at the great white throne judgment. And for those of you who don't know God, you may be getting by with it now, but he's keeping good records. And you'll stand before him. But for those of you that are Christians, you'll be spanked right now for what you're doing. And so you need to think about sin. Here he's saying to them back in Acts, I think you did this through ignorance. I think you were ignorant. You didn't know what you're doing. That probably made him more mad. Through ignorance, you did it. Uh, but, but certainly it says back, back in verse 17, I wot that through ignorance ye did it. The expression you did it in the original actually means they manipulated, they plotted. They didn't even realize when they were plotting against Jesus they were doing the wrong thing. Do you know most of those people really thought Jesus was a bad guy because he was breaking their rules? They had been so misinformed. There are people in our world today so misinformed and so misled. You know, it scares me. I, I read uh, over in Hebrews chapter 13. I wasn't planning on going here, but I'm going to go over here to Hebrews chapter 13. This is, this, is, this is kind of scary to me. Remember them which have the rule over you. Talking about your elders who have spoken, 13.7, you the word of God. And if you read this text carefully, the pastor's going to give an account for everything he teaches and preaching. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they must give an account. Do you know I'm going to give an account for my leadership and for what I do here as your pastor? It says you're supposed to obey me. Now some pastors take that to mean they can be a dictator and that's not scriptural to be a Lord. But you know, when I'm preaching the word, that's the context here. When I'm preaching something and it applies to you, you have to obey. Because it's not me that's talking. It's God, you see. Now if I tell you to do something out there and you need to do this or do that and you don't find it in scripture and you realize I'm telling you something wrong, you don't obey that. The context here is the word of God. I'm teaching and preaching to you and you need to obey. And that's hard as a pastor. Last night in the middle of the night, I, I got up and thought, I, I have got to, I, I'm failing in, in some of my leadership. I've got to point out some things and be more responsible in leadership. And I had this time of prayer and I was glad when the morning came because in the dark night, sometimes you struggle. And I thought, well, I got a second chance. You know, I, I, today's a new day to do better and to do better. Why? I'm going to give an account to him. You know what the hardest thing to do is? To tell people you love that they're wrong. <laughs> That's hard. It's hard to tell people they're wrong. 
it's hard to correct people and say, this has just gone too far. But when you're in leadership as a pastor, you have to preach the word and stand by it, or you're not going to have a following that recognizes you're following God. This is God's church. It's not mine. It's never been mine. It's not yours. It's never been yours. You attend here. You're part of this fellowship. But this place belongs to God. He's the head of the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. And the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Anyway, verse 18, he says here uh, in verse 18, and here's where he clarifies, but those things which God before had showed, meaning he foretold these, as it's translated in verse 24. He foretold the story that Jesus would die. So he's put the blame on them, so to speak. You nailed him to the cross. You denied him. You set him up before Pilate. You betrayed him and accepted Brabish. You did this. You did this. You did this. But guess what? God knew it was going to happen beforehand because God had planned for the cross. It's part of God's plan to save humanity. I mean, man's been lost since the garden. And so God had a plan. He says in verse 19, here's where he says it, a single action command here. Look what it says, repent. That's not a, that's not a request. It's a command. He says to the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, Pharisees, the high priest, everyone in the temple, repent, yeah. repent. And be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And, and, and repent and, and now's the time, you know. It says here, after repentance, he said, when the times of refreshing shall come. Now, that's an interesting word. It's a reference to the Lord setting up his kingdom. God promised a covenant to the nation of Israel. They'd have the land and they'd have a king and they would have it forever. And he said that time's going to come, the time of refreshing. He uses this in the Greek Old Testament right after the flood. There was a time of refreshing. Everything was new and clean. The dead people were all washed away and gone. And now it's a new world and a new opportunity. Man went out and sinned again, but it won't happen in the millennial kingdom. So he said, the times are refreshing. I'll turn to one more place. Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. Want to read you this. It says here in Romans 11, 26 and 27. We're talking about all Israel being saved. For I would not, brethren, that you'd be ignorant of the mystery. It talks about the blindness in part that happened to Israel. Verse 25. Until the fullness of Gentiles become in. You know what? God's going to rapture the church one time. That's when the times of the Gentiles is over. And then guess what? He's going to save Israel. Look, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. It is written, there shall come out of Zion, the deliverer, who shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant unto them. All Israel is one day going to be saved. They're not now, but they will be. We know in Revelations there's 144,000 men. Most scholars tell us that doesn't just mean 144,000. It means at least 12,000 from each tribe. And that doesn't count the number of children and wives and so forth that go along with that. They counted by family groups throughout history, throughout the Bible. So just think of the revival in that day. Verse 20, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. He's coming again. They don't understand the rapture. They're not going to see that in their Old Testament. 
It's symbolized a couple of times. We see it because we accept the New Testament. But one day the rapture is going to happen and we're going to be out of here. Nobody's going to see what happens to us. We're just going to be gone. Everyone say, ah, aliens came. I've harped on that enough. And then seven years later, every eye is going to see him. He's coming again. He shall send Jesus, his son, right here, verse 20. He's coming to this earth to take control of this wicked place. No committee or politician can change anything. He's going to take control. Isn't that going to be great? Uh, I want to be patient and pray for the sinners to be saved, but I can't wait till he comes and deals with this world. And there's a chronology for this. It says, verse 21, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution. We're waiting on heaven. And the times of the restitution, the chronology of all the events that are going to take place. And then he mentions Moses in verse 28. He said, Moses even said, he'll send one like me, but greater. Hebrews says he's a greater than Moses. Moses sinned, didn't he? A greater than Moses. A greater than Melchizedek. A greater than Aaron. A greater than John the Baptist. He's coming again, and he's the greatest of all. He's the God-man. Verse 23, every soul which doesn't listen, which doesn't hear, we need to listen to him. Mark chapter 9, verse 7, I put, I'll have that up on the screen. But everyone who doesn't listen, who doesn't hear, will be destroyed. Uh, if I was here today and I wasn't a Christian, I'd be walking forward in the middle of the sermon. I mean, that would be something to someone to say, I'm lost, this is me, I need to be saved. I'd gladly stop preaching and see this person saved, wouldn't you? Because they're going to be destroyed. Hell is real. We don't hear repentance preached. We don't hear hell preached. Jesus talked more about hell than heaven in the Bible. It's a place of literal burning fire with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't care what some modern new preacher comes out and says. I know what my Bible says. And hell is real and it awaits people who reject him. And so he mentions verse 24, he quotes Samuel and first and second Samuel. And he talks about the children of the prophets, the children of the covenant, the covenant that God gave way back in Genesis. And he's preaching this sermon and they're just furious because he has preached to them and said, it's on you. You did all this. You know, everything rises and falls on leadership. It's always a scary thought. You know, when my children live their lives, a lot of what they've been taught or haven't been taught will be exposed in their lives. And maybe their wives will say, didn't your dad teach you better? Why are you tailgating this guy? I promise you, Jeremy doesn't tailgate at all because he lives on the reservation. There's hardly anybody on cars out there. <laughs> and my point is, we're going to give account for our leadership in the homes and in the churches and even at work, we're going to be held accountable. And so he's, he's saying here, uh, you know, you have had all these opportunities and you denied him, you, you put him on the cross. He says in verse 25, ye are the children of the prophets. They had the oracles of God. You were given the covenant. The Jews were given the covenant. Why would they reject Jesus Christ? God raised Jesus, he said in verse 26, and God sent Jesus unto you. First, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. That's a word you logo, eulogy. The word bless here. We go to funerals and we hear people eulogize someone. 
I tell people, I don't eulogize people. One of the worst things to have happen is to go to a funeral and you're asked to preach and you know the guy and you don't even know if they knew the Lord and then someone gets up and said, oh, he was so good. Oh, such a great guy. I mean, he's this and he's that. And you're thinking, boy, I didn't know his testimony and I heard it wasn't great. We eulogize, don't we? Well, here it says, Jesus Christ was sent to eulogize them. He loves Israel. He wants to speak well of his bride. Did you know that? Did you know the Bible says God was married to Israel? She kept worship of idols, and Jeremiah and Isaiah both tell us he divorced Israel. He grafted into the Gentile bride. That's right. He didn't know that, but it's there. And he says he wants to eulogize you. Don't you love to hear a guy talk about his wife that way or a wife about her husband that way? Don't you like it when people talk about you that way? Or, you know, I, I promise you, I, I, over the years, you've, you've, so many times I've heard people say, oh, not my boy. The lady's boy was in jail and he was caught red-handed. They had all the DNA and she said, oh, not my boy. Not my, she eulogized her boy. What a great boy he was. We like that. We talk about our kids like that. Listen, your kids, like my kids, are born as sinners. They have to be born again. And they'll break your heart and disappoint you. But you have to keep loving them unconditionally. And I eulogize my kids. I'm thankful for my kids. Jesus Christ still eulogizes Israel. They're still his chosen people, and he wants to save them. He doesn't want them to go to hell, but they've repented. So here Peter's preaching this sermon, and they hated Jesus. You know what? They hate us for preaching Jesus. The world hates us. The world hates us. They hate us like they hated Jesus, they hated the apostles, and here the apostles are preaching Jesus in the middle of the temple, and they're all angry, and they want to kill the apostles, and next week we'll see what they do to the apostles. I mean, this crowd didn't know God. A lot of people know about God, but if they haven't repented, they don't know God. I don't care about you being baptized. It is the first commandment after salvation to immediately be baptized. I understand that. That doesn't concern me. What concerns me is when people say they're a Christian, they truly haven't repented and there's never been a change in their life. That scares me. Lord, if, if they really have never changed and really have no spiritual qualities and don't live for you, I am concerned about that person's soul. And you know, as you turn on your television and listen to people on TV and radio in, in the realm of the gospel ministry, you hear people preach things that are wrong, and you wonder, does that preacher even know the Lord? I go down to see a sign on a outside of a church that says, baptism saves. You know, what in the world? Have a friend say, well, are you, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Well, how do you know? I took mass. I took the bread, and I took the actual bread and body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. My priest put it on my tongue. It was the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. I said, well, the Bible says it's not the actual blood and body, and that doesn't save you. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's what the book says. I don't care about... All these other things. Someone says, well, I abide by this Westminster Confession. It's a great document, but that, that's not what I abide by. Amen. 
There's some really good stuff out there, some good books and good pamphlets, but this is the Word of God. And this is what, these books are going to be opened at the judgment. Not, not anything else, these books. And if you haven't obeyed this book, you'll not go to heaven, you'll go to hell. And there's no purgatory in between. It's to be absent from the body, is to be present with one or the other. I know my heart and I know I'll be with Jesus. I hope you will as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Your word's always timely, and Lord, I don't know hearts here today. I, I may think I know someone's heart, but I just don't. Only you do. God, I pray you save people. Help us to be people, Lord, who are committed to your word. Help us to learn to love your word. The Bereans studied scripture. They love scripture. They love to study it, preach it, teach it. Help us to be people who love your word in obedience to you. We'll then obey your word and be blessed by it. I don't know hearts, but Lord, you do. And there may be someone here who says, I need to come and pray because I'm struggling with something and they need people to pray with them. There may be someone here who says, I'm not a believer. Maybe someone needs to come say, I, I need to be baptized. I don't know the hearts, but you do, God, and you've spoken because your word never returns void. Bless now.